searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. What's up, everybody? It's Mike. We're back here on the Pitch Please podcast. Today, we've got Rachel from High Ivy. They're an intelligent pelvic rehab device for women with pelvic-based cancers and diseases. That's my high-level summary of it. She's going to give you way more detail and a way better pitch than me. Let's welcome to the show, Rachel. Rachel, if you want to kick us off with a quick background of your role at High Ivy and maybe a little bit about yourself. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks to the audience for taking a listen. My name is Rachel Bartholomew. I am the CEO and the founder of High Ivy Health. Essentially, High Ivy was birthed out of a pretty unfortunate situation. When I was 28 years old, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer and I was handed an 84-year-old technology post-cancer to help with you know, all of my symptoms that I was going to deal after the fact. And, you know, digging into women's health, realized that that was like, it's not just this, it's everything in women's health. And I, you know, wanted to innovate and, and you know, change that, that narrative. So created a medical device that conducts a number of different therapies that also monitors a number of gynecological conditions. And yeah, the rest is, the rest is history. Obviously, a very pivotal moment that inspired this. So I want to talk about that as yeah. well. But maybe let's talk about your time before your you know big role as, as founder and CEO of High Ivy. What were sort of the things that you were doing and the skills you were building over over your time and, and career journey and life experiences that maybe have readied you or maybe haven't fully readied you even for some of the things you're tackling today? 100%. So I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So I think that that really was always there. I've always been a risk taker. I actually raced motocross when I was a a small child up until 18 when my mom said, you're not allowed to be on a bike anymore when I got really hurt. So, you know, I've always been a risk taker and I've been around, you know, family and people who are risk takers. So I'm used to that environment. And uh, as I started to get into to school, I actually had a small, slight career as a musician uh, making music and learned how to promote myself from my dorm room. Ended up becoming a top charting musician, one hit wonder. Did a bunch of radio shows around the world at like 18, 19 years old, which is crazy. But really learned like that entrepreneurial marketing, like get out there, put yourself out there, be creative, kind of, you know. Uh, personality, I guess you could say, that inspires entrepreneurs. And then I was doing my undergrad in business and finished that up and kind of wanted to know what was next. Didn't really want to do an MBA. So I actually did a master's of business entrepreneurship and technology at Waterloo. Very different. Essentially, in the first week, you're told to come up with a pitch idea in the first week for five minutes. Um, I took what I knew and at the time was not racing motorcycles, but now racing cars. 
So I actually got into the car world and just pitched an idea of essentially a need for speed, but with your own car to be able to modify it virtually using VR and AR. And that kind of kicked off a journey of a company called The Mod Market that I started for five years. That was kind of my first venture alone into the world of of startup land. I did end up exiting that company and it was a whirlwind of a journey. I always joke that I messed up so many times that it's like a stand-up comedian level amount of of mess ups, but really learned, you know, what I should and shouldn't be doing when I do this again. But, you know, I didn't really want to do this again. And it kind of fell into my lap. And as an innovator, I kind of got forced against my will to go down and just have to try to fix a problem. But um, in the intermediary between all of that, I taught entrepreneurship to quantum computing students, postdocs, which was very interesting for six years. Um, I was an entrepreneurial advisor at the University of Waterloo for a couple of years. Um, I've, I was an innovation manager at a financial institution, so I got to play in the innovation lab space. And then I ran Wilfred Laurier's startup incubator for a bit. So I've gotten all of the innovation, entrepreneurship, ecosystem, landscape stuff. And yeah, just ended up being crazy and starting another company. Wow. Um, Sorry. I'm like trying to, it's fine. We're good. I'm trying to chunk out all the different parts in my mind because I, I was like, I don't want to interrupt, but I've got a ton yes, of questions. Go for it rich experience in entrepreneurship yeah. and we will talk about that and i'm sure you've got lots of advice but like let's go way back so like motocross yeah. and you did this for like until you were 18 yeah. and like we're talking like motorcycles going off dirt yes. jumps yes. or like motorcycles on yes. tracks like what got you into that you just naturally wanted to to start that or you just my bike's not fast enough like how did that start yeah. So, I mean, as a kid, I, I rode horses and then I guess horses weren't fast enough. So I don't know. or not, you know, gnarly enough, I guess. No, my, my father was a, he raced motocross back in the day, back in the, the 60s, 70s. And so naturally got us dirt bikes. We lived out on a farm and we had the space to do it. We loved it. And we're like, hey, we can start racing. And so I was like eight or nine. My brother was even younger. And we just fell in love with it and it became every single day. Like I was training with professionals. I was going across Canada and the U.S. racing. So, yeah, I mean, it became part of my everyday lifestyle and it kept me from partying as a high school student. So I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> well, it sounds like a lot of fun. I know how excited I get just getting like a little bit of air on a normal bicycle. So yes. I imagine just amplify <laughs> that and it's insane. Yeah. So somehow you went from that to also becoming, you called yourself a one-hit wonder. Maybe you've got other hits too, but a, a, an artist out of your dorm yeah. room. What was like, was your artist name just, just like, did you have an artist name? What was the song? What um, type of music was this? What did you, what kind of instruments did you play? So you're calling me out right now, Mike. And this is information I try to keep on the down low. I guess I shouldn't have shared it. Okay, so I was an electronic music DJ back when, like EDM was just becoming a thing. I did more. So wait, you're the real dead mouse? I, I, it, it, 
when Dead Mouse was going out, so I actually stood hang out and kind of he had the DJ books with him as well. But um yeah, so I was in the Toronto scene. I DJed it on Queen Street specifically, but I also produced and then I stopped doing more DJing and more producing. And so I had a, a one hit wonder called Rural Road. It's on Spotify. Hold on. Don't 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 go too fast because I'm literally adding this to oh, my playlist. No, oh no. Okay, Rachel, I need to know what was the name of your, your artist name or DJ name? What was the name of this song that made you famous? I'm sure our guests are curious. They probably have Spotify open right now or YouTube or let us know where we're going to find it, by the way. But tell, tell us a little bit about it. Eric. You're calling me out right now. Um, I, try to, I try to not talk about these things. That's fine. Um, so uh, my, my DJ name was Kill Pixie. Um, K-I-L-L-P-I-X-X-I-E um, on Spotify, Apple Music, I guess all the things. Essentially, I came up with the name from a uh, Australian graffiti artist who had a character called Kill Pixie. Yeah, so I was creating electronic music back in the day, back in the you know early Dead Mouse days. Um, got to party with him a bit too, which is kind of cool. But Super cool. Uh, I was... I was 19, so I couldn't even enter the clubs in the U.S. But yeah, I I started DJing. I got to do a bunch of radio shows in Europe. And uh, I was on a a label called Liquid Music in Miami. And I had a one-hit wonder, I guess you could call it. We got to the top of the charts um, called Rural Roads. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really got to learn, you know, how to market myself and how to put myself out there and um yeah and and really be creative and keep that kind of momentum flowing and ultimately you know did this out of my dorm room in between lectures so so impressive um (laughs) combining those experiences with like what is probably most than more than most people have in their life but then you also had this like massive spectrum of entrepreneurship learnings and involvement is there like something along that journey that really stands out to you as guidance for others that maybe haven't had all of those experiences or maybe the guidance is go be a DJ then an entrepreneur I'm not sure but let, <laughs> you know is there something that you know really stood out for you Oh goodness where do I start I think you know entrepreneurship is really about finding something you're truly passionate about solving, right? And it's not so much about the actual solution and, and you know, what you're, what you're creating. It's about, like, falling in love with a problem. And everything is rooted in problems. And sometimes those problems, you know, aren't significant. Sometimes those problems are, you know, a smaller piece of a larger puzzle, Sometimes those problems are not yours, right? When working in an innovation lab and solving problems for the bank I'm working for, you're digging into stuff that you just never have experienced before versus, you know, starting a company from something that you're super passionate about. And then sometimes you fall out of love with those problems, right? And that kind of happened with my first company is I kind of knew that I was the anchor to the company and I needed to hand it over for it to kind of live in its next form and stage. So I I think that's kind of the biggest piece. I think the other piece is I always say taking a risk is not jumping off a cliff without a parachute. Like you can do these things without 
feeling like you're going in completely blind. And and the last thing that I've always, you know, played to, I guess you could say, was you don't have to be an expert in things to do it. You know, it's uh, there's that kind of like I forget what they call it. There's a certain saying where it's like you go into something and you're not the expert in it and you feel like you're almost faking it. But like imposter in reality, syndrome a little yeah, bit. imposter. Exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Imposter syndrome. You know, I, I don't think that that's a thing in entrepreneurship, because in reality, some of the best best ways to get to know something is to not have those walls and those barriers around certain industries and, and that experience. Right. So, you know, going into a financial institution, never le- never knew anything about that. Right. Teaching quantum computing you know, student about entrepreneurship, know nothing about quantum computing, still don't really know anything about quantum computing, right? Um, And then, you know, starting a healthcare company as a patient that's never touched the healthcare industry at all. You're learning as you're going. And I think it's all about the attitude and how you are as a person to be able to say, okay, I've learned that. What else don't I know? And how do I solve that, right? I I think that's great advice because there's a few things. One, you've you've had an amazing set of experiences that have helped you build up some of this confidence around entrepreneurship. But yeah. there's so many people that I've talked to that are like, especially in the first couple of years of most companies, you're going to be a generalist and you aren't going to know everything about everything. But actually, the most important thing is that you're the type of person that says, I'm going to figure it out and I'm willing to learn and try. Because specialists, you don't have the luxury of hiring specialists at everything when resources are constrained. So you need actually really strong generalists with a willingness to learn and try new things. And so I think that's good guidance, which is maybe don't trip yourself up too early in the process. Don't worry about what you don't know or that you aren't the right person. If you've got the passion and conviction, take that step. And it pairs with something else I've heard often, which is just start by putting one foot in front of the other don't don't get overwhelmed by it. So it's really, really great advice. Now, you sort of have always been on this destined path to be an entrepreneur. So you've been in this space, you've had, you know, people around you that have really influenced your desire to become an entrepreneur. I want to talk about High Ivy a little bit. So maybe let's start with a pitch of what High Ivy is. And then I really want to understand the background and the compelling moments that, you know, prompted you to start this business. I know you talked a little bit about your your fight with cancer back when you were 28. And that was one element of it. But you know, you've talked about that element of am I the one to solve this? And so I really want to talk about that piece as well and even learn about Hi Ivy. But let's start with the pitch. We're on a show called Pitch, please. So Rachel, your best pitch, please. Oh boy. Okay. So one in three women will deal with some sort of public health condition in our lifetime. So when you think of your mother, your sister, your grandmother, your wife, at least one of them is dealing with some sort of public health condition. But yet, a lot of this goes unanswered um, and is not talked about, right? And so when you dig into this further, you realize that women don't have very many options. The device that I was given through my cancer journey you know, was an 84-year-old device that hasn't been innovated on. And you pair that with OBGYNs and 
you know, other healthcare practitioners seeing a 35% increase in demand for pelvic health treatments and using finger measurements to essentially get data. And we're living in the Stone Age for women. And so what we wanted to do was create something that not only provided a more comfortable therapy that brings this therapy into the 21st century, but also pairs that with a number of data points that we can collect. And so we have a device, I've got one here, essentially conducts a number of different therapeutics, similar to what you do other places in the body, hot and cold, packs on your shoulders, same concept here massage, stretching with dilation, and drug delivery and lubrication that's paired with simple sensors, temperature, pressure, moisture, that essentially looks at a number of different indicators to say, how is this body doing? How is this body recovering? And where can we go? And how can we predict potentially things that could happen? And we pair that with a mobile app where we collect self-reported data, And then we send all of that data in a package to a software that the clinician uses to essentially remote therapeutic monitor um, the patients. So I like to say, think of it as a CPAP machine, but for women in their pelvic floor. Wow. It's super complex, lots of different pieces, software, hardware innovation, data, healthcare. Maybe let's start on the simplest of these, which is like, how did you arrive at the name High Ivy? And then we'll talk a little bit about that that journey and even kind of getting this started. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So um came up with the company when I had just finished my first set of treatment, which was a hysterectomy, which is essentially the removal of your, your female organs. This was to kind of cut the cancer out of my body. And it was a very invasive experience. And in Canada, we only do open abdominals. So it's actually hip to hip cut cut open. Um, lots of scar tissue, lots of issues, lots of sensitivity and and these types of problems. And so, um, when I was on my bed rest waiting to kind of recover, I started connecting with these Facebook groups of women and really saw that it was a number of different women that were dealing with these problems. And I thought initially it was hysterectomies only. Um, and so hence the HY in high IV based in hysterectomy. (laughs) And then when I was playing on words, I came up with ivy because when you actually look at the ivy leaf, which I have one in the back here, um, it's actually in the shape of a uterus and the fallopian tubes as the uh, kind of ivy uh, vines, I guess you could say. And it just clicked and it was kind of like high pelvic health, high gynecology, high women's health. You know, those were the kind of play on words I was playing with it. And then, you know, I realized very quickly it was way beyond just hysterectomies. But that kind of paired into digging into the cancer side, digging into it's also menopause. It's also also postpartum. It's all of these different things. Um, So it's based in hysterectomies, but it it doesn't stop there. I think what's cool about that is even in just the sharing of your naming, you just talked about um, your learning that you just talked about a a few seconds or minutes earlier, which is like sometimes, you know, you think you know some things and you don't know it all, but you're willing to evolve and change. And I think you did that as part of the name, which is which is super cool. Now, you made that sound like this is just like one sit down, 
where you just like, ooh, look, inspired by some ivy. Oh, I, I have <laughs> HI from hysterectomy. I'll just join them together. Like, I, I laugh about it, but I always want to know like how long it took businesses to come up with their name because some people are like, yeah, we just like we just knew we've always known. Or some people are like, we spend months on this or we've paid thousands of dollars for this. Was this like simple for you or or did it kind of come naturally as you were kind of getting things started? <laughs> I will say I'm sure the drugs help <laughs> as a part of the recovery process. You know, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I mean, I, you know, having a point in time where my body was shut off, my brain had to be active, right? And I, I, I was going through something so traumatic that I almost latched on to solving a problem and um, doing all the things that you have to do at the start of a startup, like primary, secondary research as a way to distract myself about what I was going through, right? The creativity side is, is a fun side and it gets your brain, you know, I guess the right side of your brain going. The idea really came out of um, connecting with these women on Facebook, talking to them, you know, on an ongoing basis, seeing the problems that they were going through that weren't just my problems. I had actually dealt with some of these issues prior, not cancer, but different kind of area and was given this device 11 years prior. And when I found out that I would have to literally like brush the dust off of it, to bring it back out again i was like okay it's been 11 years like have we done anything about this and as i started to research i realized like all of these patients were dealing with it nothing else has changed then i found out that it hasn't changed for 84 years and i'm like are you kidding me and at that point in time when i had done that kind of secondary research and some of that primary with patients i had started my radiation treatments and so in radiation, you're in the hospital every day to get treatment. And I looked at it as the perfect opportunity to talk to doctors because you're not going to be around that many doctors that often in your life unless you work in healthcare. And I don't. So I use that opportunity to actually pitch to a lot of the doctors. I always make a joke that like I was laying on the radiation table and Bruce, who was my radiologist, was like aligning me up under the machine and couldn't leave my side. So I'm like, perfect. He has to listen to me. Here's my pitch. <laughs> and um, I had a really crappy PowerPoint and a really crappy mock-up of like clip art of a product. And I just kind of pitched the idea and he shared it across the radiation pods. It got back to my oncologist who called me in. I thought I was like dying or something, but in reality, it was she wanted to chat about what I was I was thinking and working on. And what I always made sure to do because I don't come from this world was who else should I talk to? And that allowed me to not just work in the cancer space and talk to all the doctors in the cancer space, but get in front of like gerontologists, OBGYNs. ER doctors, sex therapists, physiotherapists, like everybody who works in this space and touches this, this patient group. And I just kept asking, who else should I talk to? And that was the one thing that I felt I failed at, at my first company that, you know, they always say, what is it? Steve Blay tells you to get out of the get out of the room, get out of the office and go out and talk to people, right? That's like his rah, rah, rah thing. And I was always like, oh, this is business school stuff. Like, who cares? 
And I, I truly like in my first company failed at that. And I said, I am not going to invest $1 in this company unless I've talked to like X number of people about this. And surprisingly, people love to talk. So you ask them questions, you let them go. They're going to divulge way too much stuff and stuff that's going to be truly helpful for you. Right. So I think that was where I knew I had a clinician and a patient problem to solve. That's super cool. I, to your point, you know, people talk, we now know about Kill Pixie, but um, I think, I think there is a really good learning there, which, you know, back to that entrepreneurial advice, which is before you focus on trying to build something, or even if you are building something, trying to build it to perfection, get input and feedback along the way. That's the concept of, you know, you're talking pre MVP, almost market research, but from, from actual people, not just binging and Googling. Um, but then when you start to have a product, getting lots of people to weigh in and give their thoughts and give their advice, which will help make it real. And then when you have an MVP, people paying for something when it's not perfect actually gives you market validation that is like, this is a real problem because if people only pay when it's perfect, it's not a big enough problem usually. So I think that's really like great advice to, to share. Now, the, the product itself, where are you at? Actually, before, before we go there, you talked about like the thinking about this problem. That doesn't mean that you make the leap to make a business out of this. Was there a moment where all of the thinking and discussion turned into you, Rachel, are going to embark on a journey to make this your next startup and a business problem you need to go solve? Yeah, so this gets into a big conversation around women's health. And it's not just my area, it's many areas. There's a lot of white spaces and a lot of problems to solve. You know, I think fundamentally at the core, I want to solve this problem for myself, selfishly, right? And then, you know, you have OPA help a couple million women in the process, right? But I think as I started to talk to doctors and I realized like the amount of doctors that told me I give a bunch of drugs across my desk to research, I never get devices. And I even had some doctors tell me that before the current innovation, which is literally plastic stick on a handle, 84 years old, existed, they used to use glass test tubes and still use glass test tubes inside the body to do this therapy yeah and pair that with what the women were saying and some of that fundamental research digging realizing that a like we don't even understand the anatomy in women's health right you look at you just google you know women's reproductive organs and you're going to see every shape and size under the sun like nobody's got this right Pair that with research that's just fundamentally not there. Women were not supposed to be a part of or were not required to be a part of clinical trials until 1994. So we just passed 30 years, right? Pair this with just grin and bear it, women. Like, you know, you're in pain. Drink a glass of wine. Relax a little, right? And women just screaming, saying this is, this is not natural. There's nothing about this and I'm 
divorcing my husband. I'm thinking about suicide. I'm thinking about all of these things. And it's, you fundamentally go like, somebody's got to do something about this, right? And you dig in more and more and you realize like, we don't understand the anatomy. We don't understand the fundamentals here. Like somebody's got to do it, <laughs> right? And like, okay, if I'm going to do this, might as well make a business out of it in the process, right? So part of that process was gathering information about how the the logistics of the business and selling devices and, you know, direct consumer versus medical device works. And, um, you know, started to get out into pitch competitions and starting to pitch this a little bit more out there and winning competitions and realizing, okay, people actually kind of think I have a business here too. So I think it naturally morphed that way. And that was kind of the first six months of the company. It was crazy because I won a bunch of pitch competitions. One was in New York. I packed a box to move to New York right when COVID hit New York. And I was three, three people on a plane. I had gotten a new apartment. The whole place was a ghost town. And everything shut down, like the whole incubator, everything. And I had to pack my box up and jump the border back again because I get stuck there. And COVID hit and everything shut down. And I like to say that as much as it was so difficult to create a product when you need to be physically in person, holding things, interacting with things, it was also a great time for us to understand what do we know? What do we not know? What do we not know that we not know kind of thing. <laughs> and how can we fundamentally start to answer these questions while we all sit in a room bored to tears, right? So it was a perfect time for us in that first year of COVID and that first year of business to understand what do we want in a product? And we went out and I, it's so funny, we went to sex toy stores and bought a bunch of stuff and hacked them apart and built stuff. And then I essentially, I called them like our little, we look like drug dealers. Like we'd be in a parking lot with our masks on and like our hoods up and like covered. And we'd hand a bag over to like my electronics person or like my, one of the other girls on my team who would test these products and, you know, do an exchange and then leave. But that's how we got it done. And that's how we like did fundamental product research and kind of that initial anatomy and, and body research that we needed while being in complete lockdown. That's a crazy story. How so what stage are you at? So like this sounds like COVID. So obviously a few years behind us from that moment you boarded the plane and then boarded the plane back with your your box. How long has High Ivy been around? What sort of stage are you at? Because it sounds like then you were still tearing apart sex toys and, and doing a lot of research and understanding yeah. and figuring out. It's obviously been some time. You, you showed, you know, a, a product. Where are you at in this journey right now? Yeah. So we started in 2021. That was kind of when we, or sorry, 2020 it was. Sorry, I'm like already behind. So it was 2020 that things hit. We incorporated in February, which is literally when COVID hit. That first year was all about product research, medical research, and, and gathering that information to make decisions. 2021 was all about what kind of company do we want to become? 
I made a decision that I wanted to be a medical device and I wanted to do fundamental research. I raised our pre-seed round in that process at the height of what we call now like venture capital la la land. So I think it was it was perfect timing for us because, you know, we had some things figured out, but still not a lot figured out. And we raised money, which was amazing and got us to 2022, which was all about finessing and figuring out how do you make this thing a reality? How do you go from prototype stage to full, fully blown product? Um, and so 2022 was all about manufacturing. So we actually manufactured in Canada, went through, you know, design for manufacturing and all of those pieces because taking something from prototype to something that's actually functionable is is a really, really tough thing. And, you know, 2023 now has all been about how do you finesse that? How do you perfect that in order to get into clinical trials, which is now kind of the stage we're at. So we're doing clinical trials with McMaster University on endometriosis and Grand River Cancer Center, my own cancer center um, in pelvic-based cancers and having users actually doing using this in a clinical monitoring setting. Just closed our seed round, raised some more money, expanding in the UK and the US and really kind of growing this to the next level now. Wow. Congrats. Those are like some amazing milestones and grit to power through those timelines too, right? I think there's a lot of obstacles that get thrown in your way that some people would, would sort of throw in the towel or be discouraged. What would you say has sort of been your learning on that journey of the one of the hardest things or most challenging things and, you know, maybe how you dealt with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fear of the unknown, I think is a big piece of it. You know, we're learning all of this and and making that decision to be a medical device first and foremost has been the biggest hurdle for us because when you make that decision, you're making a decision to be under heavy regulatory scrutiny and, we have never played in this space before. So we're learning ISO 13485. We're learning FDA. We're learning Health Canada. We're learning what clinical trials mean and um, how to create a product that, you know, stands up to those requirements and those standards. And, you know, it, it, it's a learning curve for sure. And I think that's been a big challenge for us. And I think, you know, growth has been a huge thing for us. We know we're onto something amazing. And we get a lot of attention for it. And how do you maintain all the things that are coming your way? And then, of course, and this isn't just specific to me, this is specific to everybody. It's people management, right? How do you manage people? How do you manage in a growing company what people need, want, their desires are? How do you handle that and manage that? And, you know, I still don't have the answers to that, right? I still fail on that quite often. And, um, you know, just trying to figure out that not only for my team, not only for the people that we interact with, but also me as a leader. Like, who am I as a leader? How do I want to show up? And as challenges come my way that I've never experienced before, how do I work through them? I think that's, you know, some of the toughest challenges you can go through. Yeah, it's great advice. Now, you talked about your decision. You know, you, you have heart, you have a hardware, I guess, innovation software innovation and you said that you you had a decision to make 
of whether you wanted this to be branded as a medical device. What's the opposite to that decision? And what are the repercussions or like what what influenced you to go down this path? And what's the alternative? Because there, I imagine there's people in health and health tech building software, considering hardware. Do you make a medical device or not? What are some of the like pros, cons, or what kind of helped you weigh what decision to go down here? Yeah, great question. So it wasn't so much the software and the hardware piece, because I think the software came naturally out of the hardware and the data components, right? And that's kind of an add-on to everything. Um, what the big decision was, was a direct-to-consumer product versus a medical device. And we're in this weird world of quality of life, isn't this, you know, is it helping with sexual health? Does it become a sex toy? Can you kind of gray this area, which a lot of places can kind of gray around wellness, right? Wellness is some of the, you know, I get more and more skeptical as I, you know, I'm in this industry of vitamins and all these things. Like, do they truly work, right? And because the FDA and Health Canada doesn't have any oversight over sexual health and sexual wellness and the impact of that, specifically in sex toys, um, a lot of people can release product that doesn't require, you know, those claims, which means that, you know, you can go to market as a wellness device. You don't have to make any medical claims, but still can kind of bridge this gray area. And your perfect example of this is our lovely Gwyneth Paltrow in Goop, who, you know, tells women to stick a jade egg up their hoo-hahs and, and it's going to give them magical powers. I don't know. And they're like $1,500, right? And, you know, some people believe it. Godspeed. Like, good for you. Great. Um, but when I look at my experience, <laughs> like... Gwyneth Paltrow is not going to help me in my cancer journey. Like, I'm sorry. Like, maybe spiritually, but not from a body standpoint, right? Um, and I didn't want to be that. I wanted to fundamentally understand how do we improve something at a level um, that is effective and efficient and really makes an impact. And how do we have doctors at the realm of this? And how do we get doctors to ste step up? And that's not by going direct to consumer. And I think the biggest thing that I ran into in making that decision was medical device. Hardware is hard. Medical devices is harder, right? Um, you have so many, you're, you're so far away from revenue. You're trying to figure out kind of your next steps and how to get there. And you scare the crap out of investors because they're like, you're so far away from revenue. I'll never see my ROI. Um, and I've had investors literally say, why are you not going direct to consumer? Make me my money back. And when I have an investor say that, I'm like, we're not aligned. We, we're not on the same alignment and vision, right? I don't want to be something that is thrown into a drawer and forgotten about. I want something that fundamentally shows women that it can help them. And I think the biggest thing is like, if we fail, in our research of trying to understand that, I think that tells us just as much as passing and getting through clinical research and having great results, right? Because we don't know, like nobody knows because nobody's done it. And so we're playing in this crazy world of like, 
we ha- we don't know what we don't know. So let's just go out and try to figure it out. I love it. It's a very good like summary of the the credibility you want and the utilization and the implementation of where your innovation fits in, into helping people. Along this journey, there's got to be a bunch of stories that sort of bring a smile to your face or an inspiration. What's sort of like the most memorable or exciting story in this this journey for you that you know could inspire some others? Oh, goodness. I mean, I think my biggest motivation are the patients that we interact with, right? Um, every once in a while, I get a phone call and a voicemail left. And I had a voicemail from a man in Midwest U.S., um, older gentleman who was, was sharing that his wife is bedridden and they're looking for solutions and he's just trying to help his wife. And as we started talking, he said, you know, I will, I will cross the border. I will do whatever I can. And those are the motivators for me, right? I have a list of patients who call me and just chat patient to patient. And I think that's my, the one thing that like gets me out of bed in the morning is that, you know, it's not just me. It's a whole bunch of people that are dealing with this. You know, I think the other things are, you know, more product related, like we've, stuck sensors on this thing and stuck it where the sun don't shine and found like insane data that we don't know what it means and we're trying to unlock this key and it's so exciting because it's like this new frontier of learning something about our bodies that we just don't know yet right um so I get really really excited about that and and kind of talking to that and then you know, the endless memorable moments of pitching, you know, something that women put in their vaginas uh, to male investors will never, never get old. Um, or, you know, taking this thing that looks like some space gun slash, you know, sex toy through airport security, that will never get old. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can imagine the airport security one is a hilarious moment when that comes out of your bag. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if people want to help find out more, you know, you talked about a big piece of this being the people that you're helping. Where where should they go or what, you know, what help does High Ivy need at this current stage or maybe even for the next six to 12 months ahead? Yeah, I mean, there's endless amounts of ways uh, that anyone can get involved. I mean, from a business standpoint, we're looking for partners in manufacturing, in reimbursement, in um, you know, clinicians who want to test and and work with us. And so we have a way to connect on our website uh, for that purpose. Um, we're also always looking for patients to talk to. Uh, we pay you to talk to us um, and share your journey. And there's a way to sign up on our website. Um, on our focus groups as well. Um, And then, yeah, I think just, you know, keeping track of where we're doing our clinical research. If you're involved in that, one of those clinics that we're doing research with, um, which are all kind of up on the website, feel free to reach out and get involved in the clinical research. And as we get closer to to launching, our hopes is that we can start to convert those focus groups and those people who've interacted with us to actual customers who have something in their hands and get to 
get to, you know, be the first people to test it. So yeah, I guess it all comes back to sign up on the website. <laughs> That's awesome. And and the website for anyone, we'll we'll put in the show notes as well, but for anyone listening and writing it down right now or listening in the car, what what's sort of the the place where you can go find out more? Yep, www.highivy.com. So h y i v y.com. Amazing. Well, um, if you're ever hiring uh, by paying for flights for people to fly around to different countries and put that in their bag just to see what happens, sign me up. Happy to fly around <laughs> wherever you need me to and just give you all of the funny stories. It might be great, like marketing, like a it's thousand great. and one airport moments. But, yeah. you know, just just planting ideas in case that's ever a role. <laughs> I'm first in line, please. TSA um, will love you like they love me. The, oh, <laughs> I'm sure it will be even easier for someone like me to explain why that's in my bag. Yeah. Um. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I learned a ton. I'm going to be interested to follow your journey and, you know, learn a lot more about what you're talking around, new innovation and data and things around women's health that people just aren't talking about. Um, your story is super inspiring. I love, you know, I'm going to also listen to um, your your music later. I've kind of written it down here. Uh, <laughs> oh, for no. anyone that didn't catch it at the beginning, it's Kill Pixie. Uh, you know, <laughs> ranks in the, in the likes of Dead Mouse. But Rachel, thank you for joining today. Any closing words on, on your side? No, thank you, Mike. And thanks for having me. And yeah, I'm looking forward to connecting more with your audience. Amazing. Thanks again for anyone that tuned in and make sure to catch us on the next episode of Pitch Please. Thanks again. You've been listening to the Pitch Please podcast. Pitch Please. Pitch Please. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Tune in for regular episodes and show notes at pitchplease.ca. And make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform. Pitch Please, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Michael Thibodeau and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Pitch Please content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord. <laughs>